Hi everyone, welcome to Third Spacing the Podcast, where we talk about important issues in the peripheries of clinical medicine in Singapore. I'm your host, Enhui. Now I'm sure you've heard of famous doctor writers such as Atu Gawande, Paul Kalaniti, and Leo Tolstoy. But have you heard about Catherine Montgomery or Rita Sharon, giants in the field of tomato humanities, or even local authors such as Theresa Tan or Lo Chi Kuang, who have written about their experience with illness? Today we're joined with Associate Professor Graal Matthews, who is the Head of English and Assistant Chair for the School of Humanities and Coordinator of the Mega Humanities Research Cluster at Nanyang Technological University, Singapore. So maybe let's start off. What is the Mega Humanities? The Medical Humanities is a broad and wide-ranging interdisciplinary field that connects humanities scholars working in disciplines such as English, philosophy, history and linguistics with patients, medical practitioners, and policy makers. We typically analyze cultural representations of health and sickness, doctor-patient communication, and the history of medicine. Health communication is vitally important for enhancing the capacity of individuals to obtain and understand the information and services needed to make appropriate decisions about their care or that of their family members. Meanwhile, literary scholars often examine the language, metaphors, and myths that shape the experience of being sick. We might look to literary texts for sometimes counterintuitive perspectives on sickness, or to pathographies, these are illness narratives, usually memoirs, that describe the subjective experience of illness, treatment, chronic disease, and sometimes death. They offer the opportunity to analyze the impact of sociocultural factors, such as age, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, class, and religion, on conceptions of health and sickness. Historians of medicine, many of whom were originally doctors, explore the ways in which cultures and societies have changed their approach to health, sickness and disease from ancient times to the present. And I would say that the two main themes that unite our concerns are issues to do with culture and representation. So I understand that the mega humanities is a predominantly interdisciplinary field. So what kind of under disciplines does it work with? There are neighboring fields that overlap with the concerns of medical humanities scholars, such as disability studies, trauma studies, critical race theory, science, technology and society, or SDS, gender studies, bioethics, and posthumanism, which is about the relationship between human culture and technology. The health humanities is primarily associated with the work of Paul Crawford, Brian Brown, Charlie Baker, Victoria Tischler, and Brian Abrams, and it seeks to broaden the field beyond medical visions of healthcare and to think holistically about the ways in which the arts and humanities can inform and transform healthcare, health, and well-being. Health humanities scholars tend to focus on practical application and the impact of humanities knowledge and practice on a wide range of stakeholders, including hospital administrators and informal carers, whose contributions to healthcare are not always acknowledged. They champion increased dialogue and engagement between the humanities, professional healthcare workers, informal carers, and patients. I think you mentioned many different fields of studies and disciplines within the humanities, but maybe let's get back to the basics. What exactly does the humanities entail and what does it study? What does it try to do? Perhaps your podcast title, Third Spacing, which I understand refers to the yet-to-be-defined space between cells and vessels, is very well phrased because in the humanities, we're often engaging with those same liminal states, those spaces in between. We're interested in issues to do with uncertainty, ambiguity, and questions that don't have an easy answer. 
it doesn't mean that there's no right answer. It's more that we're interested in those thorny questions that cannot just be uh, solved with an equation. The emergent subfield of the critical medical humanities offers perhaps the most exciting approach. Critical medical humanities scholars propose that the humanities can offer different ways of thinking about history and culture that provide significant benefits to healthcare practices beyond contributions to medical education. It is commonly associated with researchers such as Angela Woods, Anne Whitehead, Sarah Atkinson, Jane McNaughton and Jennifer Richards, most of whom are affiliated with the Institute for Medical Humanities at Durham University or at Newcastle University in the UK. First, scholars in the critical medical humanities are urged to engage with the sites of the medical beyond the clinical encounter. So one relevant example in Singapore would be that very often the five-minute consultation can go by very quickly. And I know from talking to practitioners here that they often regret that they do not receive feedback on what happens next. Do patients adhere to the treatment regime? Do they receive conflicting advice from friends and family? Do they seek alternative therapies? And in what ways do their cultural and religious beliefs affect the outcomes? The decisions and ideas that determine our health are not restricted to medical institutions, and there are significant opportunities here for further ethnographic research. Secondly, critical medical humanities scholars promote closer engagement with critical theory and a variety of subfields I referred to earlier. To a large extent, this has resulted in research that reflects upon our underlying assumptions, procedures and values that underpin our research community, and it helps to amplify engagement with issues of gender, race, disability, economics and social inequality. Third, they promote active engagement across disciplines and between institutions. They embrace the complex role of a critical collaborator from which richer, more entangled investigations of various pathologies, encounters, frameworks and perspectives might take place. As this brief introduction shows, the medical humanities is not a singular field that has one role to play. Now for strategic reasons in Singapore at this particular time, the field is frequently aligned with medical education. But scholars at NTU primarily see it as a heterogeneous and interdisciplinary set of practices that unpacks and reassesses prevailing orthodoxies. As you might imagine, I find the atmosphere of intellectual risk-taking associated with the critical medical humanities to be very exciting, and my colleagues and I are very keen to develop and explore fresh entanglements and collaborations across disciplines and between institutions. Many of us might not be familiar with the humanities. Could you discuss the mega-humanities in tangible terms, perhaps at the level of the doctor-patient relationship? And also explain to us what close reading means. We're reading to make sense of the way in which a narrative is being told. We're interested in how the narrative has been put together. And there's a similarity there with the ways in which patients, when they are visiting a doctor, they often struggle to put into words exactly what the problem is, exactly what it is that they're feeling. So patients have very, very difficult telling tasks, while doctors have very, very difficult listening tasks. And you're trying to take all these different gestures, these emotions, these phrases, and also the things that are just not said, and you're trying to take from that a narrative or a meaning that is perhaps provisional and is always uncertain to some degree. 
So in a sense, being able to interpret these narratives and uncertainties will allow us to better understand our patients, which in turn facilitates us to be better doctors. So two of the key themes that we come up against again and again in the medical humanities are the themes of empathy and uncertainty. And to help illustrate this, I think it's helpful to give you a case study. This is one from uh, Jody Halpern's article entitled From Idealized Clinical Empathy to Empathetic Communication in Medical Care. And this was published in 2014. A baby is born at 32 weeks with severe neurological impairments, among other problems. Doctors prematurely discuss not only the infant's death, but organ donation and burial. Returning to the hospital a year later when the child is gravely ill, the parents seek all possible care. They are angry and distrustful towards the pediatric surgeons who believe that treatment should be terminated. The mother angrily expresses her distrust towards the physicians, saying that by living for a year, quote, my son proved you wrong. She refuses to comply with their treatment recommendations. The authors acknowledge that the problem here is distrust over the previous communication mistake, but they see no recourse other than to transfer the child to another hospital. What I find most interesting, this is how Pern speaking, is that what the authors do not suggest is that the surgeons might apologize for their earlier poor communication with the parents. Presumably, the mother's angry comment that her son proved the doctors wrong might have been met with an apology for barraging her with bad news prematurely. This acknowledgement would have capitalized on the opportunity for a psychological connection that the mother created by expressing her anger directly. She was actually courageously reaching out. Most likely, her expressed anger at the physicians was a defense against her much more intolerable feelings of anger about having a severely ill child. It seems likely that this mother needed emotional support rather than an entirely new team of doctors at another hospital. In this kind of situation, imagine how much better she would have been served if the doctors had read those underlying cues and took her in their care instead of passing her off. Now, it seems likely that the physicians involved in this case were not simply callous, but were rather anxious, and their insensitivity resulted from failure to adequately think about the mother's perspective. In other words, the failure here is one of cognitive empathy. They may well have experienced some resonance, but they did not express curiosity about the specific needs that they could address for this individual, for the mother. Now, the key takeaways that I take from this particular case study are the following. Firstly, empathy is not sympathy. Sympathy is feeling uh, an emotional response to a patient's distress. It's akin to sort of feeling, oh, they're there, I hope you feel better, and, and recognizing that they're uh, unwell or in pain. Empathy is not that. Empathy is being able to put yourself in the shoes of the patient and to be able to think about the challenges that they face and to help them then perhaps overcome them. So empathy is something that can be cognitive and effective. When trying to empathize and connect with your patients, cloud your judgment and hinder your ability to make important life-saving decisions. And building on this is the notion that detached concern, which is a particular cultural belief that doctors adopted at mid-century, uh, which has lasted today, that is actually, uh, in, in some respects, a myth. Most of the medical humanities research suggests that actually, if you are saying that you're emotional and objective, this is not necessarily true. It's more that you're repressing your emotions and you're pretending to be objective because you're still going to have emotions regardless. 
The problem comes in that if we are not conscious of our emotions and we're not sensitive to our influence, then we're very much at their mercy. They will come in and influence our decision-making anyway. Whether or not physicians try to empathize with patients, they're often deeply affected by suffering and emotional difficulties that they're witnessing. Sometimes doctors can get into conflicts with patients or there can be communication breakdowns. Uh, physicians may become frustrated with patients. Now, the physicians who are unaware of their own emotional state risk making poor decisions in order to alleviate their own distress rather than engage with the distress of their patients. I don't think this is how doctors might see themselves or even how patients might see doctors, right? There's also a problem of representation. There's a gap between the ways in which doctors perceive the work they're doing and the ways in which the general public might. We know that medicine is not simply a science. Obviously, doctors and physicians, medical students are spending a lot of time learning huge amounts of science, and that's incredibly valuable and useful. But medicine is not just a science. And I think it's quite trite to say that medicine is an art. Uh, it's neither of those things on their own. It's more of an interpretive practice. The practice of medicine, as all doctors know, is necessarily uncertain. You never know with certainty what exactly is wrong. You have to be acutely aware of anomaly. Different patients will respond to treatment in different ways. Being ill or sick is a very stressful experience. What can make things even more complicated are that the very patients that you are trying to serve might not necessarily be in the best shape or state of mind to make your interpretive task any easier. Now, the patient then is often confronted with statistical uncertainty, and they often have to make complex choices about their therapy. And patients may often not be in a good position to be able to make those kinds of decisions. They're sick, they're in pain. Those factors are going to influence the ways in which you uh, make choices. So I was wondering if there are any key figures or landmark books that you think that um, an individual who is getting the mega humanity should know about? Rita Sharon is professor and chair of the Department of Medical Humanities and professor of medicine at Columbia University. Uh, and I always contrast her with Catherine Montgomery, who's now Professor Emeritus of Medical Education at Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern Medicine. The two had very different career trajectories. Rita Sharon started off as a medical practitioner who then did uh, an MA in literature and went on to do a PhD in narratology. Uh, and so she's moved from medicine into narrative and narrative theory. By contrast, Catherine Montgomery started as a PhD student of literature. Uh, she then joined a medical school and uh, engaged with uh, medical practice. So Rita came from medicine before going to literature, while Catherine came from literature before going into medicine. The contrast would be further reflected in their work and their respective contributions to the field. But let's first start with Rita Sharon, author of the book Narrative Medicine. Rita Sharon realized that when she was a medical practitioner, that what patients were expecting her to do was to listen very expertly and attentively to extraordinarily complicated narratives. Uh, and narratives, when a patient comes to see you, they don't just sit there and list symptoms in isolation. They don't give you a textbook definition of the, of the illness. Instead, they give you a narrative, and it's told in words, in gestures, silences. It's told in images, physical findings. And then the doctor has to hear all of those stories into something that makes provisional sense, something that can be acted on. 
just from that short bit alone, you can already get a sense of Rita's underlying motivations and focus. As a medical practitioner, she had noticed how patients never communicated using technical medical terms, but rather gestures and images, stories and narratives. So things like pain, suffering, worry, anguish, and the sense of something being not quite right are very difficult to put down in words. So this is what I mean when I say that patients have very demanding telling tasks, while doctors have very difficult listening tasks. And so Rita Chevron headed over to the English department at Columbia, and she took a master's degree, and then it became a doctoral degree. And she was powerfully drawn to the study of literature because, quote, it made the medicine make more sense. Effectively, what Rita was trying to do was to bridge the communication gap between doctor and patient. Now, I know, I know, this is of course not anything new. Doctors and patients have been facing this problem to varying degrees for hundreds of years. Rita Sharon argues that narrative medicine offers us a disciplined and a deep set of conceptual frameworks, primarily from literary studies, especially from narratology, that give us the means to understand why acts of doctoring are not unlike acts of reading, interpreting, and writing. But one thing should be made clear here. Rita is not saying that you can become a better doctor and understand all of your patients just by reading novels and writing book reports. And it's important to acknowledge that the ways in which we read in humanities and especially in literature departments is not simply to imbibe a text. Often the reader has to do some work to fill in the gaps and to make sense of it. Rather than just a plot, we're, we're interested in how the story has been told and about how uh, stories are told through allusion, through symbolism uh, and association. Sometimes a headache might not just be a headache. Sometimes a cut might mean something more. It is better to access the larger context of the patient's story rather than simply fit them into a familiar diagnosis. In medicine and healthcare, one of the things that we need to take into account is not just the ontological truth, but also the phenomenological experience of the patient and what they actually experience. And this is why Rita Sharon uh, states, quote, a scientifically competent medicine alone cannot help a patient grapple with the loss of health or find meaning in suffering, end quote. Which ties us back to one of the overarching themes of the medical humanities, empathy. So if you are seeing in your day maybe 20 patients, then the conceptual effort of imagining the patient's perspective is actually quite challenging, but it's a tool, it's a skill, it's a cognitive skill that you can learn and develop and strengthen. So that focus on trying to hear things that are not said or trying to see things that are not seen is actually a complex blend of empathy and imagination. If they have a certain disability or a certain problem, does that mean then that they cannot do particular actions in their everyday life? So how do they cook? How do they remember where things are? Uh, can they still use the telephone? They're very, very practical things. So it's an ability to imagine the predicament or the plight of the patient, which then helps put us into a position to treat them all the more effectively. Okay, I think we've covered quite a fair bit about Rita Sharon. Now let's look at the other leading figure in the medical humanities, Catherine Montgomery. The bulk of her work focuses on the other large theme of the medical humanities, uncertainty. 
Moving over to Catherine Montgomery, who talks a lot more about uncertainty. She's thinking directly of William Osler, who wrote that medicine is a science of uncertainty and an art of probability. And Catherine Montgomery had a direct experience of this. Her daughter was diagnosed with breast cancer aged 28. Now, stage one carries a 75% five-year disease-free survival rate, which can be improved by chemotherapy to 82%. That seems good. But 82%, if you're the patient, is terribly uncertain. As much as we would like to think that the right medicine or the right treatment will always cure the patient, Catherine's experience with her daughter's breast cancer showed otherwise. In other words, there was a one in five chance of recurrence in five years. And what happens after that? Was that the best they could do? This was, for the most part, the best they could do. And so Catherine Montgomery kind of reasoned that actually the best it can do is, at its best, what medicine does. Now, we often assume that medicine is a positivist Newtonian science that cause and effect will always apply. But we also know that the clinic is a place of interpretation. And this means that doctors are providing expert opinion, which is arrived at using clinical judgment. It's not just there is no right answer and any answer goes. Instead, we're using the information that we have to hand in order to map out and make judgments and construct our arguments. So returning to Catherine Montgomery, she questions, well, what should be done with a 28-year-old's breast cancer? Should it be surgery? Should it be a lumpectomy and radiation? Maybe a modified radial mastectomy with or without reconstruction? If so, what sort of reconstruction? Is it immediate reconstruction so as to minimize the sense of loss and mutilation? There's no clear pathway here. Every doctor will have a slightly different, more nuanced view of this. Now, doctors are used to dealing with these kinds of questions, with these kinds of uncertainties. The thing that worries me is that perhaps patients are not ready for that. They lack scientific knowledge. They may well lack health literacy. And so they're not expecting their doctor to be uncertain. Much like Rita Sharon, Catherine is also uncovering a sort of disconnect between the doctor and the patient. But when Rita looks at how doctors can adjust their perspective to better understand their patients, Catherine, in her seminal book, How Doctors Think, goes about in the opposite direction and aims to help outsiders understand the nuances of the medical field. So, doctors are trained to aim for maximal certainty, but at the same time are used to working with degrees of probability and to be acutely aware of anomalies. And meanwhile, the patient is caught struggling, trying to traverse a thicket of very rapid education and to learn about minutiae of procedures that they never really wanted to know about in order to try and make their decisions. Of equal concern is that for the physician or technician who sees hundreds of patients over, over, over weeks and months, yet another patient can very easily become another set of statistics. But for the patient, this is their entire world. So the two are coming at these situations from very different perspectives. So what can be done about this disconnect? And how do we address the serious and practical problems of empathy and uncertainty? By now, it shouldn't come as a surprise to you that there are no real right or wrong answers. And certainly the medical humanities doesn't prescribe known solutions. Instead, what can be done is to ask questions. There's no point at which humanity scholars are going to offer you a set of prescriptions. We're never going to say, you must engage empathetically, you must 
communicate better with patients. There's never any kind of a demand or imperative like that. And it's certainly not our place to make those kinds of statements. Instead, we ask questions and we set up debates. My team and I have actually put together uh, various medical humanities modules, which some of which are geared around humanities students, some of which are geared around the needs of medical practitioners. And the one on empathy is not there to simply train practitioners to develop better skills and empathy. It's actually a series of debates where we would introduce you to the history of empathy and the debates that have come up over the course of centuries right up to the present and leave you with the tools that you need to be able to make your own decisions and your own conclusions. With that, we have come to the end of this episode where we took a brief look into the world of medical humanities. Thank you so much for listening. If this has piqued your interest in the field, then do keep a lookout for our next episode, particularly focusing on how some of these issues surface in modern-day Singapore.